The following Bloodstream Media podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Speak to your healthcare provider about all medical and treatment decisions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7 of Cheat Codes. Warriors, we hope you're hanging in there with this COVID-19 stuff going on. Dr. Mike, man, this has been a crazy time. It's been a crazy month, Dr. Z. I can't say I've ever experienced anything like this. Me neither. I uh, learned a whole lot of new words this month. Yeah, hopefully we'll do a little bit learning with our sickle cell warriors during this episode and bring you guys some content to keep you a little bit entertained while you're locked down in your house. What do you think, Dr. Mike? Sounds good. Let's get to it. All right. All right. So up next, we have a segment that we do on each of our episodes where Amar takes us through what's happening now on social media, what's going on on the TikToks and the Twitters and the Facebooks. What's going on, Dr. Z? Man, we are really like we talked about. We're living in a crazy time right now. There is so much going on. It's hard to even keep track. It's hard to even pick out good information from bad information because there's so much getting thrown at us. Oh, it's crazy. I've never seen so much information about, I mean, this is a bug we didn't even know about five months ago. And now everything on my Twitter feed, my Facebook, the news, It's all COVID. It's unbelievable. And even for like scientists, for physicians, it's even hard for us to pick out the information that's good and important and um, useful, right? Because there's so much information overload right now. For sure. And it's not, you know, we rely a lot on this vetting process. So our studies go through reviews to get approved so that you can even do the study. Then the study gets completed, analyzed, submitted to a journal. It goes through this peer review process where they pick on the data and make sure you did it right. And then it gets published. And then after it gets published, we read the articles and we compare them to other articles and we really try to figure out what we can trust and not. But this is coming at us like a fire hose. And a lot of it hasn't gone through all of those steps to really get vetted. And it's hard to know what, what is just some guy talking on, on Instagram and what is uh, real information. For sure. For sure. So, you know, in the what's happening now section for this episode, I want to highlight a few things that I sort of came by on Facebook and Twitter, some, some general themes. So the first theme that I came across, and this is, I think, kind of the way I want to approach this, Dr. Mike, is sort of like a myth busters. So the first myth that I came across is black people are not getting as sick with COVID-19 novel coronavirus. I saw that floating around a little bit, especially before this wave hit us. And I wanted to take just a few minutes right now to really emphasize how completely untrue that is. Because I don't want anybody out there to have a false sense of security that their race may be protecting them from this virus. And certainly if there is something that's protective, we haven't been able to identify anything protective in a really clear way yet, right? And I can tell you that certainly what we are seeing is that perhaps the African-American population is even doing a little bit worse, right? And that's related to a lot of important issues and really probably highlighting the health disparities 
that already exist within our system, the access to care issues that exist within our systems for African-American patients. This is just amplifying what we already know, especially for our warriors. You know, we have uh, African-American communities and, and places where a lot of our warriors live that are high density populations. So these are often in cities and you have people living closely to one another. You have people who maybe are not as financially well off, who can't do the social distancing and can't take the time off of work, maybe need to use public transportation. So there's risk factors there. Sure. And then when people get sick, access to care is not the same. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we, we know our, our warriors have a lot of challenges that way in terms of just being able to get into the doctor, having access to high quality care, being able to get medications on an outpatient basis. So I think all of those things are contributing to what we're seeing in Michigan, which is more COVID in the African-American population than in the rest of the population. We, we had a lot of information on COVID as it was hitting the U.S., but a lot of that was in Chinese patients. It was in Italian patients. So if there are racial differences or racial disparities, you know, we're just on the early days of being able to even look at that. So we know that the frustrating thing for us as sickle cell physicians is watching our patients have to navigate this really complicated medical system that is already very, very challenging for anybody, let alone someone with a chronic medical condition to get through. There's a lot of hoops. There's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of cost, right? I'm a physician and I do okay. And it's hard for me. How do you get the prior auth to get to this and this appointment, just navigating? And I, I fortunately don't have to use the system very much. But if you're talking about family where multiple people are getting hospitalized frequently, they're on insurance programs that change frequently, it's such a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for everybody. But if you have to deal with it all the time, it's just tremendous. So what I've been seeing also on social media beyond this sort of uh, first issue we tackled, the second thing I've been seeing is the number of admissions for pain, the number of visits for pain are way down, way, way down, not just here, everywhere in every country all over the world. That to me is so, so telling of how this pandemic has changed the way we're thinking. I mean, truly now we have warriors who are sitting at home probably in pain, as many of them have been telling me they are, but refuse to go to the emergency room or come to the hospital because they're scared to death that they're going to catch this virus and they're going to end up in an even worse situation. I think there's some parts of that that are good. I think that some of that can be because we're staying home. We're not getting other infections. We're not getting the inflammation from that. Um, we're not getting stressed out from work. So some of that could be, you know, real, like there really is less pain. But I think a lot of it is what you're saying. And, and I'm getting calls. I'm getting calls from warriors who are saying, I've got, you know, eight out of 10 pain. I'm almost out of my medicine. I don't know if I can take this at home, but I don't want to come down to the hospital. I'm afraid I'll get sick down there. And I can say, you know, the hospitals in certain places are really stretched and they're really stressed. But I think if you need the hospital, you can still be in the hospital safely. In our hospital, um, we have very few COVID patients. We're a children's hospital. For our warriors, the ER is slow. 
it would be easy to go through the part of the ER where the COVID patients are not going through, get admitted to the hospital where the COVID patients are not and get appropriate care. So I think, you know, yeah. we, we want people to stay home and social distance, but if you have an emergency and pain is an emergency and you need to get into the hospital, then get into the hospital. I, I think uh, it's still okay. But I think we need to think about ways to manage severe pain better at home too, knowing that some folks are not going to get in. We've been a little bit lucky. I don't know if it was coincidence, but we're able to e-scribe narcotics now, which we weren't able to a month ago. And so I think that's helping us a little bit managing pain at home. And we're open to doing things like IV hydration and pain medicines in the clinic to try to keep you out of the hospital. I think that one cool thing that's come out of all of this is a little bit of innovation in how to deliver care. That's something that's sorely been missing because for so long, I mean, everybody who does any kind of job, I feel like gets into this pattern. They just tend to do things the same way they've been doing them, whether or not it's working. And I think that because we've had such a major stress on the country, on the system, it's made us think outside the box. I mean, I mean, telemedicine, right? Like, That was something we hadn't been doing. And literally this pandemic forced us provide a new way for patients to access care, which has been wonderful. It's been a wonderful addition to our sort of practice. Yeah, I I like the telemedicine a lot. I mean, it's obviously got limitations. If you need blood work, if you need medications given in the clinic, if you need your lungs listened to or your heart listened to, we can't do that, that the way we're doing telemedicine. But a lot of things you don't need that. You need some questions answered. You need a rash looked at. You want to talk about a problem you need a prescription. Those things we can handle with telemedicine. And I think, you know, all of us have busy lives. Maybe we have challenges with transportation and being able to do this in 15, 20 minutes from home, instead of driving down to the center, parking your car, getting into the waiting room, waiting a long time. I think it is a lot more convenient for those things where it works. And I think it opens up the opportunity to do some stuff that maybe we should have been doing all the time, like checking in more frequently, making sure people are taking their medicine, making sure they have all their questions answered. I think that that has been, that's, that's important. I mean, very clearly transportation, getting to the hospital is a major, major issue for a lot of our warriors, for patients in general, right? It's a nightmare sometimes to get this get into, find a way to get to the hospital, get here, park, just like you said. And I would rather, honestly, the art of medicine, the beauty of the physician-patient relationship and the physical exam and the way that that physical exam guides you in your decision-making is so important. And you can't understate being able to feel a spleen or being able to listen to decreased air coming into the lungs, right? But if I'm choosing between a patient not coming at all versus me being able to talk to them for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes by a telemedicine visit, making sure things are okay, making sure they have their refills. I would much rather have that 10, 15 minute telemedicine conference than have a no show completely in my clinic. Yeah. You know, I I think that's a good point. I mean, it's not going to replace everything. I think there was a TED talk from a guy called Abraham Verghese, who's a great author and it was a great TED Talk. Not not as good as your TED Talk, Dr. Z, but it was uh. a good TED Talk. <laughs> and it's about, uh, his TED Talk's about the importance of the physical exam and, and 
touching patients, you know, that, that bond you get by being in the room together and talking about things that you can only talk about in a doctor patient relationship and, and doing that physical exam and um, really getting to know and understand your patient and them really getting the trust and know you. You don't get all of that from telemedicine. But if what you're trying to do is check in and make sure somebody's taking their hydroxyurea and they don't have questions about it and they're getting their refills and they're not running into any barriers, you can do that in a 10-minute telemedicine visit. And maybe you can do it around their school schedule. So they can do it when they get home from school at 2.30 instead of trying to get down to the center and 20 minute drive and parking and they can't get in because we don't have an appointment after four o'clock. So I, yeah, exactly. I, I think uh, it's, it's definitely going to help us. I think it's definitely going to be an improvement. So the third thing, Dr. Mike on um, social media, that's buzzing everybody from 45 to my mom has an opinion on hydrochloroquine Plaquenil. It is in every post. It is all over my newsfeed. It's all over Twitter. It's everywhere. Let's talk about that for a second because this is not unique to hydrochloroquine, right? This, is, this seems to happen with many different types of compounds, medicines. People get really excited really fast or they shut it out really quickly sometimes. Yeah, so I you know, I think it stems from us wanting to have a medication that can help with this. Everybody's afraid of COVID. Everyone would feel more comfortable if we knew we had a medicine that worked. I think the challenge is drug discovery goes through lots of phases. So we learn about a disease in basic science. We have animal models of it. We do high throughput drug testing to look for things that might affect it. We do early phase human trials and phase two trials and phase three trials to make sure that the drugs are safe, that we know the exact dose to use them at, that we know how long to give them for, and that we see that they actually work. And, and often we do that in a placebo controlled trial where we don't know who's getting the drug and so we're blinded and we look at an important outcome, like in this case, you could look at survival or you could look at uh, time on event. So I think the challenge with that in the COVID era is everybody wants that timeline compressed from 10 years to 10 days, and that's just not possible. And fortunately, there is a lot of study of SARS and MERS and other coronaviruses. And one of the things that had some promise in coronaviruses in general was this hydroxychloroquine and zinc or hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And so uh, they wanted to roll that out quickly. Now, it hasn't been studied in this. And where it has been studied in the other coronaviruses, it was a little bit disappointing. It didn't actually work. And I, I think that's an important thing to think about here is we've had flu for you know, thousands of years, we've been working on drugs for it for, you know, decades and decades. And we've got one drug that shortens your symptoms from on average five days to four days. That's not real impressive to me. And that's with billions of dollars and years and years of work. So the idea that we're going to find a shortcut here and in three months find the answer is really optimistic. And it's probably not true here. But having said that, we should wait for the data. So I've seen a couple trials with hydroxychloroquine. They're garbage trials. No offense to the people who did the trials. 
They're early stage trials. <laughs> They're early stage trials. Some of them are looking at proxy endpoints. They're not looking at things like survival or ventilator. Some, the big ones have 60 patients and look at you know days in the hospital or time on event or things like that. And so, you know, I think not much can be said from those. It's hard though, right? It's just like you said. I think the really challenging thing is in the absence of evidence, you still have to make a decision. That's it. So that's exactly it. And I I think some people forget this. There's a, there's a guy on Twitter who I follow, who's really into evidence-based medicine and he gets angry when you bring up this uh, trial of parachutes. There was a really funny paper in the British Journal of Medicine. That's probably almost 20 years old now. There is a group of people who really are sticklers about, you know, we shouldn't do anything until we've proven it in a randomized controlled trial. And this paper said that they should all volunteer to be in the randomized controlled trial of parachutes because, <laughs> you know, we, we know parachutes work. We don't need a randomized yeah. controlled trial to show that they work. But right. in defense of those people, most things are not parachutes. Most things make a very little difference, if any at all, and you really do need a good controlled trial to see. But I think the thing that those people miss out on a lot is that as a doctor sitting with a patient who's sick, you have to make a decision. Do we use hydroxychloroquine or not? And there's not much evidence. So even though there's not much evidence, you have to make that decision. And I think with something like hydroxychloroquine, it's safe. It's been used for a really long time. I've been on it before for malaria prophylaxis when I went out of the country. Um, if you if you have a long QT syndrome, maybe you shouldn't be on it. So I think it's a decision that should be between the doctor and the patient on an individual basis, and we should be working to get more data. And this is true of a lot of things. I mean, I, I think there are quite a few other potential agents out there that people are, are testing. Some of them are people who had the virus and maybe have antibodies against it in their serum. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to learn, right, still about what's happening and how to best approach this disease. But you're right. Sometimes you just have to make decisions. And, and the physician who's making those decisions for you is making them with you in front of in front of them, right? Like it's it's a decision you make in a in a continue it's sort of in a one point in this time space continuum, right? It's hard to sit there with your hands folded and be like, I'm not doing anything until I have more data. Well, more data is not going to help the patient who's sick in front of you right now necessarily. There are times when that makes sense, right? We say first do no harm. You know, there are times when you don't want to try something new. It might be dangerous. I think as doctors, we should have a one-on-one with the patient and discuss what the options are. And uh, I think reasonable people could come down either way on this one. So speaking of reasonable people coming down on issues that may be controversial in sickle cell disease, our guests today in the next segment are actually Dr. Bari Andamariam and Dr. Lewis Sue who are chief medical officer and vice chief medical officer, respectively, of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, and um, head a committee called the Medical and Research Advisory Committee for the SCDAA. Um, And you guys are going to hear a ton in this segment about uh, that committee, which we call the MARAC Committee. You're on that, Dr. Z. I am. I am. And and it's sort of, uh, it was fortuitous the way it happened, which you'll hear about in the next segment. But uh, I, I get to hear 
sort of 30 of the best, sharpest minds out there in sickle cell disease talk about these exact issues and come up with some type of consensus statement that's debated and debated and debated until it comes to something that everybody agrees on. So even amongst these physicians, you have all sorts of opinions, opinions all over the place. And one thing that came up in a visit with a patient this week, Dr. Mike, that I just want to put on record is do physicians get paid for writing prescriptions for drugs? No. No, no, never. There is not one prescription ever written that has resulted in a physician making money. I want to be so clear about that because I couldn't believe it when I had that conversation this week in clinic, uh, but apparently- And this was somebody who thought you were getting hydroxyurea money, right? Yeah. I mean, so th they specifically did it, but they were telling me how they, the circle that they move around in talks about how every time a doctor writes a hydroxyurea, a penicillin, a Norco script, the money goes into their pocket. And I almost wanted to pull up my Bank of America app and be like, do you, why don't you take a look at this? Because that is not the case. So I'm glad that you're not making money and just not telling me about it. This is like a thing. None of us are making money by writing prescriptions. No, I, and I, I, I think, you know, with, with the Merak or, or with your physician, I, I think physicians as a group, we, we do well financially, but the vast, vast majority are very altruistic people who really are trying to do the best thing for the patient in front of them. They're not doing it for money. Like this Merak, you guys are all volunteers. You spend hours and hours reviewing the literature, sitting in meetings, arguing stuff. You don't get paid for any of that, but it's a service to the community. And it's service to your fellow doctors who then, you know, can take those, those uh, recommendations and, and provide better care for their patients. And same, same is true with medications. You know, some medicines are expensive. Some of them are not so expensive. Some companies make a lot of money on them. Hydroxyurea, I don't think anybody makes a lot of money on. But none of that is coming back to your physician. They're recommending that because they think it's what's best for your health. Exactly. All right, good. I'm glad that we cleared that up. Well, thanks for talking with me, Dr. Mike, about these things that are going on. My pleasure, Dr. Z. All right, everyone, let's get to my favorite segment, which is where Dr. Mike does most of the work. This is going to be our warrior word of the day, Dr. Mike. I think I have a really, really appropriate one for you this time. I can't wait to figure this one out. Yeah, this is a word that gets thrown around quite a bit when we're talking about sickle cell disease patients, when sickle cell disease patients are talking about themselves. It's a way that they sometimes get described medically that makes them a little bit maybe more high risk than usual. It's a term that gives us the impression that sickle cell patients might be a little bit more likely to get sick. All right. I think I got you. Yeah. So the term we're going to talk about today is immunocompromised. Immunocompromised. So immunocompromised is another big word. It means having a weakened immune system or a reduced ability to fight infections. And there are a lot of ways you could be immunocompromised. To think about it, we can think about how our body fights off infections. And it's got a lot of different ways it does this. One is you have surface barriers. So you have your skin, you have the lining of your mouth, and if bacteria could get through those, then you'd get sick all the time. But because they're there, you don't get sick. Your skin keeps bacteria out. The lining of your gut keeps bacteria out. You have things on those linings that help fight infection. And so those barriers are part of your immune system. 
And if you had, for instance, a big burn and your skin was broken down, you could be immunocompromised because you had that burn and that you'd be at a higher risk of getting bacteria that normally live on the skin. You're kind of missing a line of defense. Right. So your immune system's compromised because you're missing one of those pieces of it that helps fight things off. Now, if a bacteria gets through that first line of defense, crosses over the, the membrane, crosses that barrier and gets in, then you have another set of defense mechanisms of your immune system called the innate immune system. And these are things like white blood cells that go around and identify things that aren't you that are trying to get into your body and they'll eat them. We call that phagocytosis. And so you have neutrophils and monocytes, and they go around and eat these bacteria as they get in. And then they break it into little pieces and show it to other immune cells. So you have lymphocytes that help make antibodies. So lymphocytes are a kind of white blood cell. We all have them. They're floating around in our body, and they're there to help fight infections. Some of the lymphocytes, the B lymphocytes, make antibodies. And antibodies are little proteins that float around, and they're called humoral immunity or um, our adaptive immunity. And what these are is once you've seen a bacteria or a virus, your body's been exposed to it, it got eaten up by one of these cells, your body makes a targeted immune response against it. And so those are the antibodies. And the antibodies will stick very specifically to whatever that pathogen or that bacteria or virus is that's trying to get in or fungus or whatever the thing is that's trying to infect you. Those antibodies can very specifically target it. So that's why we do vaccines. You get a vaccine, you get exposed to something that allows your body to make antibodies against the real bacteria or the real virus and, and protect you from that. You know, the way that I think about that, Dr. Mike, sometimes in high school, my simplistic way of remembering it, after your first exposure to a, to a bad guy, right? Like to a criminal, you know, the, the cops might make a wanted sign or put up a, a picture saying, if you see this guy, you know, this is a problem, right? So like, you might want to notify us. You might want to tell somebody, call the police, let us know. It's almost like the immune system creates little wanted signs after their first encounter with that bad guy. I gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. And then the wanted signs get stuck all over that guy when he comes in and the police come take him out so he doesn't destroy the, I don't know, doesn't beat you up again, I guess. Take your lunch money. Yeah. See, this is, this is, this is how you start thinking when you're, when someone like me with a IQ 20 points lower than yours has to make sense. Of <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the lymphocytes and the antibodies make up your adaptive immune system. So they specifically fight against things that you've been exposed to before. And there's another part of that called complement. And uh, it's sort of like when the, when the bad guy has the wanted posters on him. It, it helps stick the wanted posters to him and put him in jail, I guess, or something. So if any one of those pieces goes wrong, you could be immunocompromised. So we talked about somebody who had a burn and their skin was broken down. We could talk about somebody who had HIV and HIV infects the lymphocytes and makes the lymphocytes not work as well. And that causes a problem with a lot of the immune system. There are some people who are born with problems where they don't make antibodies as well or those white blood cells that eat the bacteria, they don't do it as well. So all of those people would be immunocompromised in one way or another. Our warriors, they have a problem that is because their spleen doesn't work. That was a warrior word of the day. It was. I think that was episode maybe one or two. Yeah. So, so that spleen is part of the lymph system. It's like a giant lymph node. It's got a lot of lymphocytes in there. And one of its jobs is to 
eat bacteria that are in the bloodstream. So bacteria get in the bloodstream, they get antibodies on them, or they get this complement on them that recognizes they're bad guys. And then the spleen clears them out. It eats them. It phagocytizes them. The bacteria get cleared out of the bloodstream. But if you have sickle cell and the sickle cells have damaged your spleen and it's not working as well, then those bacteria don't get cleared out and they can cause something called sepsis and you can get very sick. And so the, the bacteria that require the spleen the most to clear them out and require this process are the ones with capsules around them. Some, some bacteria have sugar capsules around them. And if you have a sugar capsule, then you need the spleen to clear it out. And so those are things like strep pneumonia or Neisseria meningitis or Haemophilus influenza. Okay, so they have like a they have like a cover around them. Basically. Yeah, it's like a sugar coating, and it makes it uh, so that they need to be cleared out by the spleen. And so our warriors, because they can't clear those bacteria out, we say they're immunocompromised. Their immune system doesn't work as well. They're at a higher risk of getting infections, but not all infections. Their skin still works fine. Their white blood cells still work fine. Their adaptive immune system works well. It's these very specific organisms that they're at very high risk for. You can be immunocompromised in one specific way against one specific type of organisms, but do fine against others. That's how our warriors are. So in general, I would think that our warriors would fight viral infections just as well as other people. Um, it's just these encapsulated organisms are sort of the Achilles heel for our warriors. I think that's why we say our warriors are immunocompromised. But I think there's another thing we need to consider in this. What's that? You can have a normal immune system. You're not immunocompromised. Your immune system fights off an infection just as well as anybody else's, but you can be compromised in other ways. So you can be at a higher risk of having a bad outcome if you get an infection. So as an example, let's say somebody has a really weak heart. They have bad heart failure. So they may not be more likely to get an infection than someone else. But when they get that infection, it's going to make their heart failure even worse. It's going to stress that organ that's already not working more. If they get that infection versus somebody with a normal heart gets the infection, they get much sicker. And it's not because their immune system's compromised. It's just because they're more vulnerable. And so I think our warriors are in some ways at risk of those kind of things too. And it's variable because some of our warriors are doing really well. They don't have what we call comorbidities. They don't have other health issues, just sickle cell. But because of that, if they get a lung infection like COVID, they could get COVID the same as anybody else. But when they get a lung infection and the oxygen gets low, they can get acute chest syndrome. Right. So even though they're not getting the COVID because their immune system is not working, if they get it, they're at higher risk than maybe people without sickle cell disease. And a lot of our older warriors especially might have kidney issues. They might have pulmonary hypertension. They might have lung issues. And so they're going to be particularly at risk there. And even some of our younger guys and gals might have uh, asthma and be at risk. Um, and, and certainly that risk of acute chest is there with everybody. I was going to say, Dr. Mike, we talked, so you talk now about these encapsulated organisms that have the sugar coating around them, that the spleen is really good at fighting. Are there things that we can do from a medical standpoint that help warriors fight some of those bugs that are sugar coated specifically? Yeah. So I think in one of the earlier episodes, we talked about the props trials. Oh yeah. And doing penicillin prophylaxis. Yeah. Um, and 
until age five. And that helps um, because most of those bacteria can be killed by penicillin. And so that helps a lot. And then um, we have a lot of vaccines that are not functional versions of those bacteria. So you get exposed to those and then your body makes antibodies and has an immune response ready. The wanted poster is already there, even though you haven't gotten mugged by that guy yet. And, uh, and so your, your body's ready to fight off those infections. So those are some things we can do for, for that. And I, I think for everybody to have our immune system functioning optimally, we need to get enough rest. We try, need to try to minimize stress, you know, maintain activity and be a good weight and good health in general. Things like drinking a lot of water can help that barrier membrane. So if you drink a lot of water and you have moist mouth and nasal passage and mucous membrane, that can help stick some of the bacteria or viruses before you even inhale them. So that's part of that barrier defense and, and you can help that by by keeping well hydrated. So I, I think there's a lot of things we can do to keep our immune system functioning as best we can and, and to help where you know the spleen isn't working, you can help with antibiotics and with vaccines. Very cool, Dr. Mike. Very, very cool. Thank you for that really nice breakdown of um, this term, immunocompromised, which seems to sneak up on us every so often and gets confused, I would say, by a lot of people, not only by patients, but also by other physicians who aren't entirely clear about why sickle cell disease might make you a little bit more a little bit more immunocompromised. So thank you so much for that. All right, Warriors, for you to add to your list, immunocompromised. In the next segment, we are super excited to be able to talk with Dr. Bari Andamariam from the University of Connecticut Sickle Cell Center and Dr. Lewis Sue from the University of Illinois, Chicago, who um, serve on the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America's medical board as uh, chief medical officer and vice chief medical officer, respectively. We're going to talk with them about COVID-19, um, SCDAA, and what they've been up to over the last couple hectic pandemic weeks. Yeah, I'm excited. These are two great guests. They're really leaders in our field, and they're the chief medical officer and vice chief medical officer of the SCDAA. So it's, it's great to have them on and hear about what's going on in the community of clinician scientists and how they're approaching this pandemic. Yeah, and these guys are putting in so much work behind the scenes to get information out in an accurate and time-effective manner. Um, so I'm really, I'm really, really happy that they're, they're joining us for this next segment. Stay tuned. Awesome. Well, guys, we are super excited to have Dr. Bari and Miriam and Dr. Lewis Sue with us for this episode of Cheat Codes. What I want to do is have Dr. Bari and Miriam and Dr. Lewis Sue introduce themselves and talk a little bit about themselves. So let's start with Dr. Andamariam. Bari, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of uh, background? Tell, tell the, the listener who may be out there that is living under a rock and doesn't know who you are, tell them about who you are. <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having us on your show. We're really excited to be able to impart some of the knowledge that we've been able to gather, particularly related to living with sickle cell disease and uh, doing so in the setting of this COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. So my name is Bari Andamariam. I am a physician, uh, a hematologist, oncologist who takes care of adults. I focus on um, adults with sickle cell disease. I 
practice at the University of Connecticut. And a lot of people know that Connecticut is one of the early hotspots for COVID-19. Um, and I'm also the chief medical officer of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, which is the oldest and largest advocacy and awareness organization for individuals affected by sickle cell disease across the United States. And uh, I'm really excited to be on your show today with my partner, uh, the Vice Chief Medical Officer of the SCDAA, uh, Dr. Lewis Sue, who can also introduce himself. Thanks, Dr. Anderberry. So I'm Lewis Sue. I'm a pediatric hematologist, so I take care of kids with sickle cell, and I'm at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I know Dr. Omar Zaidi from Sickle Cell Summer Camp. Got to cross state lines into Michigan to participate in summer camp for kids with sickle cell. Very pleased to be on the show too. Yeah, so I, uh, I thank you both for being here, but but uh, Dr. Sue getting to that, to the camp thing, I have such a unique opportunity to get to see Dr. Sue every summer at Sickle Cell Camp in a way probably no other Sickle Cell colleague of ours gets to, um, where he is just like elbow deep with these kids and letting them put shaving cream on him and throw water balloons at him and really just like running that camp. And it's, it's awesome. It's awesome to do that with you every summer, Dr. Sue. They feed me marshmallows. <laughs> I just figured that's the way clinic was in Chicago, no? <laughs> So guys, we have a lot of sort of um, moving pieces to this coronavirus thing. And with sickle cell disease, you know, a lot of us were sort of, it felt like we were standing at the beach waiting for the, waiting for the tsunami to hit. And, and that's sort of kind of how I still feel. I feel like, man, are, are we out of the woods? Is this thing going to get worse? Where, where are we headed? How, how have things been going with you guys in, in Connecticut and Chicago? Well, uh, yeah, as you as you know, Connecticut is right next door to New York and New York, Connecticut and New Jersey have really been sort of the epicenter of COVID-19 infection um, as it first hit uh, the United States a few weeks ago. So we really feel like the tsunami has hit uh, and it's not dying down. Here in Connecticut, we have um, one of the highest rates of COVID-19 infection uh, per person across the United States. And, you know, we also have a lot of people who work in New York and live in Connecticut and travel back and forth across the border. And so that's probably how we got a lot of the the infected um, cases early on, but we're super, super worried about our sickle cell population. And I know that's probably going to be our focus today, but the tsunami has hit and I, I fear that it's going to go in waves across the United States. And it's really important that people listening today heed the advice that we're giving, even if where you're living right now is not yet really affected much, uh, or you don't know anybody yet that's, that's had COVID-19. Um, this this virus is real, and it's 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 really scary even for us physicians. What about what about you, Doctor Sue? What's happening in Chicago? How do things look? Well, there's a couple different uh, things to look at right now. One is that it has hit our city, this state, very hard. So that my colleagues who are taking care of adult sickle cell patients have lots and lots of people in the hospital, lots of them very sick, including I think at least one death last week. Kids have not been having such a bad time of it so far, which is. Uh, which is a blessing. And many people with sickle cell are listening to the directives to basically stay home. Uh, and we're trying to phone in prescriptions for them and things like that. We're, yeah, we're doing a lot of the same things here in Detroit. And one thing I'm worrying about is that people are listening to the directive to stay home too much. And we have people who are maybe getting sick and they're afraid to come to the hospital 
or they're or they're in you know miserable pain at home, but they don't want to come in because uh, they're worried that the hospital is where the COVID is. Are you guys seeing that? And if so, what are you what are you saying to the patients? Yeah, I think we're trying to be really proactive about that, and I'm sure we'll get to some of the guidelines that uh, the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America has put out to try to help patients like that and, and their family. Um, I think that you know. We're being so proactive in our clinics and getting in touch with all of our patients by, by any means necessary, whether it's directed phone calls or, or letters to the home or emails, uh, to let them know that it's important to call us, even if they're feeling unwell, uh, that we will work with them to try to get better at home, or if they really, really, really need to be seen and primarily seen to be evaluated for COVID-19 infection or cell-related complication that can't be managed at home, uh, that we're finding ways to bring them in in the safest way possible. And I think a lot of the sickle cell programs and just general medical and pediatric clinics across the country are operating that way or moving in that direction where we're trying to accommodate taking care of patients primarily over the phone rather than face-to-face and figuring out who needs to be seen and and who needs uh, who can stay home and, and be managed that way with close uh, oversight with maybe you know daily phone calls and like Dr. Sue said calling in prescriptions so don't stay home if you have a healthcare provider call them tell them how you're feeling and let them help you make the right decision so so yeah i mean that's a that's a great segue Barry, into uh sort of talking about what the SCDAA is doing. But before we do that, we, we have a, we have some listeners that are not sickle cell patients necessarily that may not know about SCDAA and what SCDAA does. Do you guys want to tell us a little bit about SCDAA? And then we can talk about the subcommittee that's sort of guiding some of the advisories that are coming out. Sure. So the SCDAA, it stands for the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. It is an awareness and advocacy organization founded in 1972. And it is headquartered headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, but has uh, 46 member organizations or basically chapters across the country in about 35 different states. And the focus is on improving the condition of, of the lives of those affected by sickle disease, whether they be persons who have the disease or family members or caregivers that are sort of indirectly affected. And what we've done in the setting of this COVID-19 pandemic is not only sort of raise awareness uh, in the community about about COVID-19, but also done other things that we can talk about a little bit later, like trying to improve uh, the blood supply, which is at risk in the setting of, of this pandemic, and also try to raise money for patients and families, uh, particularly those who are experiencing financial hardship during um, the stay-at-home measures. So we have a subcommittee called MARAC, and maybe Dr. Sue would like to tell people what MARAC stands for and what we've been doing. MARAC is the Medical and Research Advisory Committee. And so it's uh, a group of about 25, 30 individuals who volunteered to provide advice for uh, the people who are in SCDA and its affiliate and member organizations to say what kinds of things are really reliable information, not just rumors or some one doctor's opinion, but these are things that you can hopefully really rely upon. And Merrick has kicked into high gear <laughs> at the time of this uh, COVID pandemic, where it's meeting and doing things a hundred times more often and a hundred times more uh, outputs than it ever had before. Yeah. So it, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know, two and a half weeks ago, I, I tend to probably text Dr. Andamaria more than I should to run things by her, I don't know, two and a half, three weeks ago. 
I texted her and we're, we're talking about COVID and I was like, oh, you know what? I like was trying to work on these guidelines and sent them to her. And she was like, yeah, you know, we're also working on this stuff. You, you should probably be part of this. And I was like, I've never heard of this thing before. I've never heard of Merak. And she's like, oh, well, congratulations. You're part of Merak now. And uh, she started including me on these committee calls. And I can tell you guys, I mean, every single thing that's written in this advisory is like scrutinized to the 10th degree by like some of the most knowledgeable people in the world as far as sickle cell disease goes. It's kind of amazing to watch these conversations unfold and and see all these opinions come through. I think that's really important because patients have information in this age coming at them from everywhere. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody on social media has the ability to get their opinion out there. So I think it's really important to know that these guidelines are scrutinized by some of the best minds in sickle cell disease regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Th- thank you for saying that. I mean, I, we definitely we definitely want to have the confidence of the community and, and the listener out there when they're looking at the, the guidelines that we've put together. So thank you. Yeah, Mara is a group of, of individuals um, who are highly respected and are giving a lot of their time to try to come up with the best advice, not only for individuals living with sickle cell disease and their family members and caregivers, but in addition to that, coming up with recommendations for healthcare providers uh, to make sure that the two are aligned. For example, if you take the the primary recommendation, which we were very early in, in recommending, which was to stay home at all costs as much as you can, as long as you're not too sick, of course. I'll take that as an example. That, that advisory to patients was really strong, and I think they got the message. But we realized that, one, we had to give patients the tools um, and advice to figure out how to successfully stay at home and be as well as they can from their disease standpoint, and also to be prepared from a, from a home standpoint, having the nece- necessary um, food and, 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 and medications and um, supplies at home to, to really be able to sufficiently almost quarantine themselves for an indefinite period of time. And number two, we realize if we're telling patients to try to stay home and, and self-manage their disease as much as possible, we had to give recommendations to our our colleagues, our other physicians out there that told them that, look, if we're going to expect patients to stay home as much as possible uh, so that they limit their chances of getting infected with this virus, we need to make it easy for them. So we need to provide as much as possible telephone visits as opposed to requiring face-to-face encounters for routine visits. We need to get more comfortable with providing refills on prescriptions without seeing our patients face-to-face, but maybe just with a telephone contact to make sure that, you know, they're not having any side effects and make sure that the dosages are right. Um, And we need to also provide emotional supports and utilize uh, our social workers and and psychologists to help us provide emotional uh, adjustment tools for our patients uh, to, to utilize to get through a very isolating experience. Yeah, thank you guys so much for putting this together. You know, when this started, Dr. Zadie and I um, started thinking about what are all the things we need to do. And, you know, being two doctors with hundreds and hundreds of patients, um, you know, we were working in a lot of different directions, getting telemedicine up. But there's really no way we can keep on top of everything 
um, or anybody can. And so to have a group of experts where you can sort of divide and conquer and discuss and really work out the details and, and come up with something that all of us can use um, is, is such an asset for the community. Well, thank you very much. And I want to definitely say it now and we can say it over and over again to your listening audience that these guidelines um, are at www.sicklecelldisease.org and they're constantly updated, uh, usually on the order of the week or when anything new is out there. Uh, we're trying to really stay up to date with all of the, the new information about this virus. So www.sicklecelldisease.org. You know, one thing that I think is really important is... Um, for pa patients to know that uh, the provider document, the provider advisory exists so that when similar to like what we tell patients about the ASH guidelines, the NHLBI guidelines, whatever it may be, to, to be aware of them, tell your doctor about them. I think it's important to keep that in mind that we have, there is a provider document on sicklecelldisease.org that you can refer your doctor to that is the opinion of um, 36, 37 of the best sickle cell doctors in the country um, for them to look at and determine how to best care for them. We've been hearing from, from patients, um, adult patients, as well as parents of, of pediatric patients, that it's been difficult to um, be able to work from home in a lot of circumstances or to be able to give them the opportunity to take some time off from work uh, because I think a lot of people out there, employers and whatnot, don't realize how high risk uh, sickle cell disease patients are. This guideline, if you, you can point your employer or your human resources department to this guideline, one was the healthcare provider one because we out very clearly that this is a high risk disease and that place accommodations should be implemented. We've had some patients get admitted to outside hospitals um, and have sent these recommendations over to them, you know, in addition to talking to the doctor who's taking care of the patient. Um, I think to have something that they can read and hold on to is, is really helpful. Um, can I jump into a couple of uh, controversial topics and, and see how the MIRAC has approached it? Um, ibuprofen, has the, has the group uh, come out one way or the other on on this Lancet article that uh, talked about ibuprofen maybe being a problem? I think we're still waiting for a little bit more information. There's some places that are looking at that evidence as still preliminary, and some people saying that maybe the timing of the ibuprofen is a key, that when you have uh, different phases of COVID disease, there may be a time when you don't want to suppress the inflammation so much, and there may be a time later when you do everything you can to suppress inflammation, that the cytokine storm idea. Our advisory group, MARAC, is doing a really, I think, really good job of staying on top of emerging sort of medical issues um, and medical guidances and concerns. But at the same time, we're being very measured about making sweeping recommendations until we have enough data. And we, we totally understand that, you know, for sometimes some, for some of us, the first time in our lives, we feel like as physicians, and a lot of us are academic physicians, that we just don't have a lot of evidence to go on. So I think we're doing a really good job of being measured and patient. And before, you know, sort of outlawing or banning the use of any um, 
over-the-counter anti-inflammatories uh, like ibuprofen or naproxen that we're telling patients, look, this is a potential concern. There's some information out there. Um, it's, it's still an evolving area. So we think it's best that you actually talk to your physician. Like we're really comfortable with not always being authoritative um, and saying, look, this might be a case by case decision to talk to your doctor. I think that's great. You know, we're getting just hit with a storm of, um, information and um, we talk about evidence-based medicine. I, I feel like sometimes now I'm practicing rumor-based medicine and I, I hear some new piece of information and um, I can't find a study to back it up. Um, and so to have a group that's really trying to filter through all of that and, and um, seriously approach the, the information we have and make decisions is helpful. Um, have you guys discussed medications that might be beneficial. Um, I, I think we all use azithromycin pretty frequently in patients with sickle cell who have pulmonary infection. Um, so I, I don't think that's controversial at all, but uh, maybe hydroxychloroquine or um, some of these antiviral agents are being studied and, and used wise, widely, but I don't think we have a whole lot of data what what is the MARAC discussion been around that? We talk about those issues all the time because we're staying abreast of all the um, potential new treatments or currently most commonly employed treatments to combat the, the, the viral infection, the COVID-19 infection. And that includes hydroxychloroquine. That includes things like anti-IL-6 therapy. Um, and we have the benefit of having members on MARAC who've been combating this virus for longer. We have two members on Marac from Italy who have been giving us, you know, personal firsthand accounts of what they've been dealing with for months um, and what they've done to try to treat and combat the virus. Um, that said, we're also trying to be very careful to stay in our lane. Um, we are trying to be careful to uh, first and foremost be experts on the treatment of sickle cell disease. So our, our focus is on making sure that clinicians out there treating uh, sickle cell patients who are infected with COVID-19 also think about all the issues that individuals with sickle cell disease have, including pain, which needs to be managed at the same time, including the development of a very serious complication called the acute chest syndrome, which can look almost exactly like COVID-19 infection. So you can imagine if a sickle cell patient comes in to an emergency department and they have fever, cough, shortness of breath, uh, and chest pain, that if they test positive for COVID-19, those doctors are gonna focus on treating the COVID-19, whether it's hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, what have you. But they might be missing that on top of that, the patient has a superimposed acute chest syndrome, which would not sufficiently be treated with just COVID-19 treatment measures, that that patient would likely also benefit from a whole blood exchange transfusion. So that's the kind of focus I think Merrick is bringing. And trust me, we oftentimes get sort of really deep into this and focus on the treatment of COVID-19, but we're trying to be really careful. And one last thing I, I wanted to say on that point, specific to hydroxychloroquine, we do know that um, a lot of our patients um, uh, could potentially have um, G6PD deficiency. 
Um, and so we're making sure in our most updated guidelines that'll come out probably within the next 24 to 48 hours that we address that concern specifically because giving hydroxychloroquine in the setting of a G6PD deficiency could uh, create a, a worsening hemolytic anemia. And along the lines of that G6PD deficiency and the international scale, we have the benefit of one expert who is in Lebanon. And as you probably know, G6PD deficiency in the Middle East is often more severe than it is in other, uh, other variants of G6PD. So he's giving input about what hydroxychloroquine in his patients with or without sickle cell, the ones with G6PD have been doing, and he seems to say it's okay. So that's been very interesting to get those kinds of perspectives. Amazing. This is a truly amazing, uh, an amazing effort that you guys have coordinated for this community. And um, I mean, hats off to you. I see the work that you guys are putting in. I see the emails coming at all times of day and you guys diligently answering. So, so thank you so much from, from the entire community, from the physician community, from the, the patient community. Thank you for all of your efforts. You're welcome. Thank you. I, uh, you know, before we, before we end, I need to ask you guys a couple not serious questions. Okay. All right, so let's start with you, Dr. Andamariam. I'm going to ask you guys what you guys cannot wait to get back to once we are out of this stay-at-home quarantine. What do you miss the most? Not to make people out there cry, but um, I have children, and um, I have had to make the really you know, difficult decision to have them stay away from me. Um, for the near future, because being a healthcare worker, I'm so high risk for getting this virus. And I, I don't want my children to get it. Um, particularly one of my sons has pretty bad asthma. So what I look forward to first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get them back and I'm going to hug them really tightly. That's so cute. <laughs> Dr. Sue, what do you have for us? Well, so I'm an empty nester. My kids are grown and they're living in Baltimore. For me, it's probably going out to restaurants <laughs> with my wife and being able to just function more freely in society. Uh, yeah, that's giving hugs is right up there, though. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's getting to a barber. That is going to be. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to look like a caveman by the end of this. Uh, we're going to post some uh, barber YouTube video. Yeah? <laughs> Do it yourself. What do we say about staying in our lane? It's oh. true. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, and we would love to have each of you back individually to talk about um, hopefully happier things. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And thanks for letting us uh, come online and um, let people know what we're doing to support them through the COVID-19 pandemic. And again, www.sicklecelldisease.org. Awesome. You guys heard it. Sicklecelldisease.org. Make sure you check out those guidelines. Thanks, guys. All right, so historically, uh, the Red Cell Research Review has been Dr. Mike breaking down really landmark, seminal findings in the sickle cell world that have changed the way that we are practicing medicine for sickle cell patients. What do you have for us this week, Dr. Mike? Because this is a COVID-focused episode, I thought I'd focus on papers about sickle cell and COVID. And there aren't any New England Journal seminal game-changing papers. This has only been around for a little bit, but there are two publications now of COVID cases in people with sickle cell disease. They were both in the American Journal of Hematology, and they're very short. They're case reports. Uh, often we break studies up into different categories. A case report is really just that. It's somebody reporting one case. So it's one 
patient or two patients that had something happen. And the benefit of that is you get to hear a story about a patient and you can put it in that context. You can learn a lot from even single things that happen to single patients. Difficulty of it is that these are anecdotes. They're one-off events. You can't say cause and effect. This thing happened to the patient. It's hard to say why. Could be a coincidence. So often case reports will say this happened with this. And it's like, did this happen because of this? It's hard to say. It's just one, one story, but we can learn a lot from them. So both of these were in the American Journal of Hematology. The first one I'm going to read is called COVID-19 Pneumonia as a Cause of Acute Chest Syndrome in Adult Sickle Cell Patient. And this is from Franz Birkins, yeah, at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. This is really a very short report, and so I'll read it, and I'll kind of editorialize as I go, so you can kind of get a perspective of how Dr. Z or I would read an article like this. So it says, to the editor, as the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic continues, there is an increasing focus on the impact of patient comorbidities on disease presentation and clinical course. So they're saying with COVID-19, we know if you have another medical problem, it can make the disease worse, the COVID-19 worse. Patients with sickle cell disease who are infected with COVID-19 may have a significant risk of developing acute chest syndrome. I think we've talked a lot about that today. A potentially life-threatening complication. We report on the first documented case of a hospitalized patient with sickle cell disease who developed acute chest syndrome in the setting of COVID-19. So then it goes into the guy's story. A 21-year-old man with a history of sickle cell disease, hemoglobin S beta-0 thalassemia, on maintenance hydroxyurea therapy, presented to our emergency department with worsening left hip pain over four months. His prior history was notable for an episode of acute chest syndrome two years before presenting, requiring symptoms blood transfusion. So there's a lot of interesting interesting points right there. So first you have a younger guy. Yep, he's 21 years old. So right? and then, in general, those age groups do better with COVID. And then you have somebody who's on a protective right medication, disease modifying. It's on hydroxyurea. For sure. We don't know. It doesn't say if he's taking it or how compliant he is or what, what his numbers look like, but he's on hydroxyurea. And he's had chronic hip pain for the last four months, but he's coming in because it's worse. So he had an MRI done and says, after an MRI showed evidence of avascular necrosis of the left hip, he was admitted for pain control. On hospital day five, five days after he's been admitted for this pain, the patient developed a new onset fever of 38.6 degrees Celsius. So this is like 101.6, 101.7 degree fever. And we see this a lot in our warriors. They're in the hospital for pain. They're maybe getting pain medicines. They're laying around. They get a fever. Sometimes it could be that they had a virus brewing and that was maybe why they were having the pain. Or it could be that they're not getting good deep breaths and they get atelectasis, like their lungs collapse a little bit, and then they get a fever. I'd be really interested to know from the warriors um, who may have had the flu or have had COVID, is the body ache from the viral infection very different from your regular pain? Can you tell those apart? Can you sort out viral body aches from your sickle cell pain? Let us know. Leave a comment. Send us a, tw- send us a tweet. Let us know how that goes for you guys. A tweet to, uh, at Dr. Z sickle cell? Or at Imagineer. Yep. Chest x-ray showed minimal linear atelectasis. So atelectasis is when sort of the little uh, compartments of your lung 
collapse on themselves a little bit in the right lower lung and joint aspiration of the left hip. So they put a needle into his left hip uh, was negative for septic arthritis. So they put a needle into his left hip to see if the fluid was infected and it was not. Despite starting an empiric course of ceftriaxone and azithromycin. So empiric means they didn't have a specific bacteria. They were just guessing and and treating with a sort of standard course, not specific to what they were fighting because they didn't know what it was. And they used two common antibiotics, ceftriaxone, which covers a lot of strep pneumonia and and things that we see in our warriors, and azithromycin, which covers uh, mycoplasma and some atypical pneumonia uh, type of things that we see in acute chest. So despite starting that, his fevers persisted. He was tested for influenza A and B in RSV, as well as Legionnaire's disease and a blood culture, and all of those were negative. And they checked his procalcitonin, which is a marker of inflammation, and that was normal. So then on the 10th day of his hospitalization, he developed a new cough in hypoxia, which means low oxygen, and his oxygen saturation was 82%. So normal is in the high 90%. The highest you can get is 100%. And that's the amount of hemoglobin in your arteries that have oxygens attached to it. And some of our warriors might run a little bit lower, but not that low. Not not in that range, right? Yeah. Never never 80s. Yeah, maybe even high, like low 90s, high 80s, yeah. but 82 yeah. is, is quite low. And so then they said it corrected with two liters per minute of supplemental oxygen. So they put them on the little plastic tube in the nose, oxygen, and they ran it at a pretty low rate, two liters per minute, and that was good enough to get his oxygen level back up. His labs began to show evidence of systemic hemolysis with a decrease in hemoglobin of two grams per deciliter and an increase in the LDH from 302 to 664. So there's a couple things going on here. One, his hemoglobin, and and we've talked about hemoglobin as our word of the day before, decreased by two. And so that's a pretty big drop. And that's something we see when people are having acute chest syndrome. And his LDH, which is an enzyme that lives inside of the red blood cells, it went up. So the red blood cells are breaking and that LDH is getting into his plasma and we're seeing it go up. So he's having more red blood cell breakdown. And we see that. Hemolysis, right? Hemolysis. That was another warrior word of the day. I think that was episode four. (laughs) So his white blood cell count was 6,000, which is normal. And his absolute lymphocyte count was 1,400. And a lymphocyte is just a type of white blood cell, right? Right, right. And they tend to be low in people who have COVID. So 1,400 is on the lowish side, but it's not really low. So a repeat chest x-ray, so now he's 10 days out and they took another chest x-ray and it showed multifocal ill-defined opacities in the left mid-lung retrocardiac portion of the left lower lobe and right base. So that is a radiology way of saying that this guy has pneumonia in both lungs in multiple different spots in his lung. So given his new cough, his low oxygen, and these new findings on the chest x-ray, he met the criteria for moderate acute chest syndrome, and they gave him a blood transfusion. They gave him one unit of packed red blood cells, and his hemoglobin went from 8.6 up to 9.2, which is not that impressive a response. Sure. So at that time, they did SARS-CoV-2 PCR, So that's the test for the SARS-CoV-2 or the virus for COVID from a nasopharyngeal swab. So they stuck a Q-tip way up into his nose and got a sample and tested it for the COVID virus and it came back positive. 
and he was started on hydroxychloroquine for his severe COVID-19 pneumonia. He started having chest pain, particularly when he was breathing and high fevers and he needed more oxygen. They had to turn it up to four liters per minute. Okay. Um, they did an EKG and it showed that his heart was beating fast, but uh, they also checked for enzymes, like if you were having a heart attack, he was not, but his chest x-ray continued to worsen and now they saw diffuse ground glass and reticular opacities, which this is the findings that we see in COVID-19. So it's a hazy appearance in lots of spots in the lungs on an x-ray. So given his worsening respiratory and clinical status, he had an exchange transfusion, and that got his S level down from 88% down to about 18%. That's really good. And Yeah, I think they must have done phoresis. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So then on the 13th day of the hospitalization, um, his oxygen improved. He was up to 90% on room air, so no more oxygen going into his nose, and his, his saturation was at 90%. And he didn't have any more chest pain or pain when he took deep breaths, but he was still having fevers. He enrolled in a clinical trial for further treatment of COVID-19 pneumonia. He improved and was sent home on uh, day 16 of, of the hospitalization. So we know that uh, viruses are a common cause of acute chest syndrome particularly in pediatric patients. But in adults, less than 10% of the acute chests are thought to be from viruses. But in a situation like COVID, where you have a viral pandemic, and most of the patients with sickle cell disease have never seen this virus before, they're not going to have any immunity to it. They have uh, immunocompromise, as we talked about before, and they're at higher risk because of this risk of acute chest. It creates a particular problem for people with sickle cell. There was no previous published evidence from the SARS outbreak because that mostly happened in Asia where there's not a lot of sickle cell. Um, in the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, um, there was not a lot of evidence from that, although there were some small cohorts that suggested that um, patients with sickle cell disease, particularly children, may have had more complications from the swine flu. Yeah, I recently looked at some of that literature. It's uh, all all good good investigators with small numbers. So it's um, Dr. Baba Inusa published a cohort from London. Our buddy J.J. Strauss published uh, a small cohort. And then I think there's a small letter from um, Elliot Vichinsky. And it, it's hard to make broad patterns out of small numbers like that, but it seemed like um, some of the kids did get pretty sick and their hemoglobins tanked and they needed exchange transfusions. That's sort of the only pandemic that has any real sickle cell evidence. That's a good point. The authors say, you know, as COVID-19 remains an emerging disease, there's not a lot of data on how this may affect sickle cell disease patients, pediatric or adult, but that we know it can cause this severe respiratory problem, ARDS, in the normal population and sickle cell patients could be at high risk. And we see these high inflammatory markers and more problems in people with comorbidities like hypertension and diabetes, um, which we do see in some of our warriors. Um, so it's likely that um, acute chest syndrome and respiratory complications in sickle cell patients could, could be a big problem with, with COVID-19. And so that's why they published this single case report. So I, I think... This is sort of a good example of a case report. It's acute chest syndrome, which we see in people with sickle cell all the time, 
and COVID, which is this new viral disease, together. So you could say, is it a coincidence? People got acute chest syndrome before COVID, but it makes sense that what we know about COVID, it would lead to acute chest syndrome. And here's an example. And, and uh, this patient needed exchange transfusions, but it sounds like he did pretty well. I think, again, we, we talked a lot about uh, hydroxychloroquine earlier, and this guy got hydroxychloroquine. Now, you might say, well, he got better and he got hydroxychloroquine. I think, you know, that's an anecdote. It's one person. We don't know what would have happened if he didn't get hydroxychloroquine. He may have gotten better faster. We, we just don't know, um, which is why we do these randomized controlled trials to try to figure that stuff out. So there is in the same journal, the American Journal of Hematology, another paper called Vasoocclusive Crisis and Acute Chest Syndrome and Sickle Cell Disease Due to 2019 Novel Coronavirus COVID-19. It's from uh, Dr. Noor, N-U-R, from Department of Clinical Hematology at Amsterdam University in the Netherlands. And this goes through two patients who presented with COVID-19 and sickle cell disease. And I, I think, you know, what's interesting, and I think we're seeing this in some of the cases in the United States, is we think of COVID as being a respiratory problem and people presenting with respiratory distress and cough and fever and respiratory symptoms. But these cases and some of the cases we're seeing in the U.S., the patients didn't present with that. They came in with pain, um, sometimes chest pain, sometimes hip pain. Um, and then they developed over time the, the symptoms. And one of these patients actually had a negative test. And then they did a test a couple days later and the test was positive. So I, I think that highlights something that, um, you know, the tests are not perfect. And there's, there's something called an incubation time. So you get exposed to the virus and it starts growing in you, but it's not causing any symptoms yet. And then, you know, when the, when the symptoms start, you may still test negative. And then a couple of days later, you may test positive. It's not that the virus wasn't there earlier. It's just that it was at a low level and the tests are not perfect. Um, so I, I think that's one thing that you get from this second paper, which has two case reports. And, and the other thing is, you know, this is a 24-year-old man and a 20-year-old woman. So between these three case reports, you're talking about three people in their 20s. And we've been talking a lot about SARS hitting older people, but I think this highlights that it can hit younger people too. Well, Dr. Mike, that's a really nice rundown you've given us, um, you know, of probably the first of many case series, case reports that are going to be coming in the next month or so. So thank you for that. And we'll keep, we'll keep the warriors updated on new events that unfold regarding sickle cell disease and COVID-19. Um, anything else, Dr. Mike? No, stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for the great segment. All right, Warriors. Well, that completes another episode for Cheat Codes, the Sickle Cell Podcast by Bloodstream Media. I want to say that this was our first recording over quarantine, and it's been a little bit different, but I still think we uh, we got done what we needed to do. Yeah, it was a good episode. We had some great guests. I, I think uh, I, I enjoyed it, but I'm looking forward for this quarantine to be over. I'm sick of it already. Oh, man, I, I can't tell you. I need a haircut so bad. That's going to be the first thing that happens once this quarantine's up. 
be sure that warriors listening out there you share this podcast with somebody who you think could learn a little bit about sickle cell disease be sure to follow like subscribe and also make sure to follow us on twitter dr mike what's your handle at imagineer and mine is at dr z sickle cell all right warriors all right be safe everyone thanks for joining us keep living well with sickle cell till next time